Welcome to the second episode of Critical Frontiers in Engineering Education. This is a podcast that is brought to you by the Department of Engineering Education, led by Dr. Jenny Case, and Engineering Online, led by Dr. Glenda Scales. Both are housed in the College of Engineering at Virginia Tech. I'm Natasha Watts. Um, I'm one of the hosts of this program. I'm also a member of the Critical Frontiers in Engineering Education Research Group. And this podcast is actually a recording of our research group. Uh, my co-host Ramon and I are both uh, in that group. Today, Ramon is going to talk a little bit about who we're going to hear from, as well as who was chairing this. Um, each week, we have a member of the Critical Frontiers Research Group chair uh, the lecture or the speaker. Um, so they kind of give us an overview of who that person is and what we're about to hear. Ramon? Thank you, Natasha. Today, we are talking about James Trevelyan's paper, Transitioning to Engineering Practice. Prior to researching engineering work, James has experience as an engineer based out of Australia. Could you tell us a few highlights and some key points that were pulled out of this paper? Um, I think that we touched on during the recording you're about to hear. Yeah, sure. So some of the highlights, um, again, connect back to how new or early career engineers deal or contend within the workplace um, in their given industry. And indeed, research suggests that many career engineers experience a gap of skills um, needed, them, needed for them to work. So some of the things that Trevelyan points out uh, are directly related to engineering education. Um, and the first is that engineering students do not necessarily learn that engineering is about productivity and improvement. Indeed, he explains how most engineering students um, recognize that problem solving is, is, is at the core of engineering. However, they don't necessarily connect it to productivity improvement, and they really have vague notions around how engineering improves the world without any critical explanation of how. And the second thing that, you know, is pointed out here is that engineering students do not necessarily learn how to practice engineering. And to be specific, Trevelyan argues that engineering students don't learn how to deliver practical results in line with the expectations that are put forward at work. As a result, um, he says that it is unsurprising to see that there are low completion rates um, on engineering projects that are embarked around the world. And in part, this has a lot to do with engineers' abilities to collaborate, communicate, and take on things that they see as non-technical. So that's, I think that's fascinating for anyone. So we're talking about increasing productivity, increasing communication so that it's actually um, fruitful in your endeavors to be productive. <laughs> um, I also think what's fascinating is Chris, who is chairing this, his research interest is actually in this field, correct, Ramon? Correct, yeah. So Chris is looking at the transition from college graduation to the engineering workplace. Um, and some of the things that really drive this sort of research is an understanding that there is a mismatch between what we teach in the classroom, how we're teaching students, and what expectations are in the workplace. And of course, you know, using the term industry here colloquially within engineering, um, what engineers would call the engineering industry. But again, some of the questions that arise are around how limiting this perspective is. You know, what what does engineering industry look like and what should we be teaching students? There are aspects of engineering that don't necessarily intersect the industry, but those are that's a conversation for another week. What really we're, we're interested in here is trying to understand what skills engineers are lacking in order to be successful. And it is commonly called in engineering education a gap of skills and knowledge or knowledge and skills. So I think a lot of our listeners could probably identify with trying to figure out how to fill gaps in knowledge and skills. I mean, I think that uh, most of us are here today because we have an astute interest in in education um, in the field of research. And so I think that's, I, I kind of found a lot of things fascinating in his talking point and I won't give away any spoilers. Um, but I think the thing, if you're listening in um, and before we launch into this is to start to really think about like, 
you know, where are, where are you sitting? Are there things missing? Are there things not identifying? And I think what you'll understand in the Critical Frontiers podcast and the Critical Frontiers research group is that we're trying to have a lot of conversations about just that, like what is missing and why it's missing um, and, and how can we start to discuss these things in sort of a way that it, it, it teases out the issues um, so that we can see them more clearly because I think the, you know, the academic setting in general has a lot of things that it's constantly trying to figure out. I mean, I know personally, that's why I'm super addicted to learning is because the problem is never solved, which I actually really enjoy, but we're always constantly trying to improve upon, on the quality of it. Well, I guess some people might argue the problem is solved, but for me, I feel like we're always trying to make things better. Um, We're always trying to improve upon it. And I think like, the group, you know, our research group that's led by Dr. Case, you know, we've had a lot of good conversations about about that, about how to separate problems, um, how to pull them apart, and how to start to see them for what they are. Thank you. Yeah. So just some last pieces before we start to hear from Chris and then James. You know, one of the things that I, I want to point out is that, you know, as we start to consider what are the gaps uh, that of skills and knowledge that engineers get after graduation or what do they what what gap of skills and knowledge do engineers have after graduating um the that sort of question has moved because over the past 50 years we've been hearing this from industry so seeing research that really starts to look at you know are these skills there are they are they is there really a gap here um is important. And I think certainly the work like James Trevelyan's really starts to help us critically interrogate, you know, the reasons why we are conducting research in engineering education and, and how we can start to improve engineering education research, I mean, practice rather. All right. Thank you, Ramon. And with that, I guess I'm actually going to wrap it up. (laughs) Uh, We're going to launch into the second episode of Critical Frontiers and Engineering Education podcast. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Dr. James Trevelyan has a unique perspective on um, engineering work, which has been shaped from him practicing as an engineer since 1971 um, and researching engineering practice since 2001. Um, he told me these things. Um, not that he told me to say it like this, but um, he's also taught engineering either part-time or full-time since 1975 until his former retirement in 2016. Um, he's pretty prolific with books like Making the Expert of a, or The Making of an Expert Engineer, um, which extends from an international study of approximately 300 engineers. Um, I'm getting that right from Pakistan, Australia, India, and Brunei. Um, he also won the Western Australian of the Year Award in the professions category, which I thought was neat. Um, in my own research, I found Dr. Trevelyan to be one of the most influential engineering education scholars concerned with engineers of work. Um, and so, yeah, I hope today that we can just learn better about what engineers do at work and how edu- education can um, shape. Uh, in reaction to that. So um, why don't we give them a warm welcome? Thank you very much. I I presume you want me to say a few words before we go into Q&A, right? Sure. So I'm going to give you some idea of where I've come from. So as Chris said, I've practiced engineering for a long time. And in 1975, I started teaching engineering. And one of the things I realized straight away was that what I was teaching was not what engineers really do. But I thought, well, that doesn't matter, I just teach what I'm supposed to teach and I carried on doing it for quite some time. Uh, Many, many years down the line, uh, I ran a course on sustainability. It was a a course for final year engineering students of all disciplines. And this was an opportunity to get them to work in a way which they could expect to be working as professional engineers in not only in teams, but in a way that in teams where they had to cooperate, the teams themselves had to cooperate and negotiate with each other. And I was really astonished with the depth of emotional response to this from many students who protested the idea that their grades would depend on what other people did, not on their own work, nearly as much. And this struck me as being very 
you know, it was difficult to handle at the time. And I thought a lot about it after that. And that's one of the, one of the threads that I'm going to bring to the discussion is the difficulty that engineering students have in relating to the collaborative culture which they will face as engineers. The other uh, aspect I'd, I'd bring is that my wife is originally from Pakistan. Um, and of course, Jenny has met her. Uh, and having been to Pakistan gave me a completely different perspective on how engineering works in countries other than the US, Australia, Britain, and so on, where I'd practiced before. And in particular, it, you, you face what I, I didn't realize at the time, but, but now I get a, a, got a different perspective on it. You, you've got a very interesting situation where most countries around the world, that is our low-income countries, uh, are in a cluster with a productivity level. And, uh, and here you have to understand productivity is a macroeconomic measure. And I'm going to explain what it means in a moment. But essentially a productivity level of about five to one compared with high-income countries like Japan, the US, Australia, Canada, European countries, and so on. What does this productivity gap actually mean? Well. I, when I first went to Pakistan, I just instinctively assumed that everything would be less expensive. And we actually set up a, a research project there and I expected to get a lot more work done for the same amount of money than I did in Australia. And I was quite shocked that we actually didn't get very much done at all. In fact, it turned out to be a lot cheaper to do the research in Australia. And I gradually realized that all my ideas about things being less expensive had to be turned on their head. And the most striking example is the cost of safe drinking water. So in Pakistan and India and so many other developing countries to get safe drinking water of the quality that you would expect in a Western country will cost you anywhere from five to 10, sometimes 20 times as much for a thousand liters. And there I was in a country where the poorest people were paying the most outrageous amounts of money for water because the piped water system didn't work. And that was the starting point for my research. I thought, what's going on here? There's nothing particularly complicated about a water supply. You know, it's pipes, dams, reservoirs, valves, pumps. And it's pretty much the same everywhere. So if engineers in Australia can do it, how come engineers in Pakistan had so much difficulty and in many other countries? And being a researcher, I suddenly realized here was an opportunity. And I started researching this and I had access to engineers. I was interviewing engineers. I was employing engineers. That's why my hair went gray with frustration because they were not doing what I expected them to do. And, and that was the start of the journey around about 2000, 2001. And along the way, gradually realized that we knew very little about what engineers do when they're working as engineers. A lot had been written about engineers, but not about the engineering side of what they were doing. People had researched them from the point of view of learning about teamwork, management, and lots of other things, but no one really had been really interested in what they did as engineers. It was very difficult to find information. So, at, you know, now at the other end, well, a lot further along this journey, I now have some ideas. And in essence, the difficulties that face engineers in low-income countries are all to do with collaboration. You know, the engineering science works just as well anywhere. But the way engineers collaborate with all the other actors is very different from one place to another. And so this was the trouble, troublesome aspect because when I, going back to those students in sustainability course, they were having immense difficulties with collaboration. And so do engineers all over the world. And it gradually occurred to me that maybe there's something about the education system that actually prevents them from learning. And this is where I stumbled onto the idea that I've written in the, in the paper, which I hope you've all had a chance to read, that maybe here there is a conditioning process going on whereby the rewards which we hand out in education, that is grades, are conditioning students to believe that the way you get those rewards is through a solitary written performance, you know, an exam or doing an assignment on a laptop at home or something like that, but basically writing and you're working on your own. And the grades measure what you achieve as an individual rather than other people. And you come from that 
that uh, milieu of education where collaboration is often regarded as cheating into a working environment, and it's not just engineering, but engineering is the area in which I focused, where you can't get anything done without collaboration. And as Casey Beddoes wrote very succinctly in one of her recent papers, you move from a world where you are trained to be an independent thinker on your own to one where you have to be interdependent. And, and that's the, that to me seems to sum up so many of the difficulties that I see in engineering performances around the, all around the world. It's not just in low income countries, there, there were performance difficulties everywhere and I've written about those. So I guess that's where I'd, I'd like to start from. It is this idea that maybe the structure of education itself, the system that we have of rewarding individual performances with grades is actually conditioning our students to be very, uh, to, to a point where they, they find it very hard to collaborate with other people. So I'm gonna leave it there and invite questions and discussion and ideas. I have to point out that this is an idea that I've had. I'm not doing research any longer. I'm in the luxurious position of being able to do exactly what I please. But one thing I've decided I'm definitely not going to do is formal research projects with lots of qualitative research or quantitative surveys and things like that. That's where people like you come in. So these ideas that I'm putting up in, in front of you and saying, you're welcome to prove me wrong or to prove me mad or deluded or whatever. That is the challenge that you have in front of you. So yeah, does anyone have any questions? I have some, but I want to give other people a chance to ask. So. You can ask anything you like. I have a clarifying question regarding collaboration. I know you were talking mainly about the teams, like the engineering teams, but I was wondering if you also saw uh, in the project in Pakistan or whatever, the problem with collaboration between the actual team and let's say the contractors or the government or the other, um, like collaborating with other people who are not engineers. You know, in all my career as an engineer, and the engineers that I've watched, I have very, very seldom seen engineers working in what you would call formal teams. The engineering team as such is generally regarded as being a nebulous idea, which captures the idea that you have to collaborate with lots of people, even the people who are you know, the ultimate end users. But definitely it starts with uh, finance and investors, uh, accountants, lawyers, contractors, suppliers, and so on. And what I discovered very early on in the research we did with engineers is that most of this collaboration is with is informal. And if you're in a work group, it's with people outside the work. And this was a big surprise to me. And it's very, very consistent in our data. So this, this idea that engineers have to collaborate is it starts from day one. Uh, and you can't get anything done as an engineer without collaborating with somebody. Even engineers, like I know engineers who work entirely solo. They're individual practitioners. They have no partners, but they can't get anything done without collaborating with their suppliers. They won't get paid unless somebody is prepared to give them money to do whatever it is they're doing. And, you know, engineers, generally speaking, we're not very good with our hands. Many of us can't even build a backyard barbecue, let alone fix a car. So we are utterly reliant on people who are good with their hands to turn our ideas into something that's real and tangible. And not many people pay for engineering work unless they get that tangible end product in their hands. So collaboration is like part of the glue that holds engineering together. The really intriguing thing is that when I started interviewing engineers, and this has been a consistent thread all the way through, I'm not the first to observe this by any means, the first response from most engineers would be, why are you talking to me? Because I hardly ever do any engineering. And then they would say, uh, well, then, then I would say, okay, fine. So tell me, when you're doing the engineering bit, what are you actually doing? Oh, calculations, design, simulation, that sort of thing. And usually I have to do it after hours when everybody else has left and the phone stopped ringing or even on the weekends. You know, you just don't get time to think about that during the normal day. So I said, okay, well, what's the stuff you do during the day? Oh, meetings, contracts, admin, paperwork, all the sort of things that Jenny does most of the time. 
and engineers it's no different. You know, even when I was working as a research and development engineer, I was spending far more time on essentially collaboration. But that meant meetings, endless discussions and so on. So, all right, anyway, so then, and, and I'd say, okay, so this is all non-technical stuff. Yeah, that's right, it's all non-technical. Okay, so why don't you hire an admin assistant to handle all that for you? Oh, that wouldn't work because you need to have all the engineering knowledge to do it. Okay, so that's engineering work as well. No, 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 you don't understand. It's not real engineering. It's not what I, not what I learned to do at university. So there you have it. All right, a fundamental contradiction. And, and Rosalind Williams wrote a wonderful paper. Uh, I've forgotten what the name is, but if you go back, I think about 2002, maybe, a profession that's, anyway, it's, it's, you'll, you'll find it under Rosalind Williams, a historian at MIT. Uh, and also there was a nice book written by Leslie Perlo called Time Famine. Leslie was at uh, Harvard, I think. Um, and she wrote this book about engineers who are constantly short of time. And they described how any social interaction was to them an interruption. Right, so you have this, this difficulty with engineers that they regard most of what they do as not engineering. So I don't know whether that's answered your question, Ella, but, but uh, that's, if you like, that, that's where you, that's a starting point. So the bit that is collaboration, which of course is the bit that's not real engineering, without which engineering would never work, is the bit that engineers call not real engineering. I think we should change that, but I'm not quite sure how best to do it. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna, um, I was gonna ask about where, where you'd fit that, that all in, because we, we did, we spoke um, like about the engineering curriculum, the skills needed in terms of technical knowledge, say for example, I'm speaking from my own experience as a, as a chemical engineer. And I also had the problem where it took me about a year to a year and a half just to actually figure out who the people were that I needed to collaborate with and to speak with when I was in the workplace. And um, I think one of the questions I would have is, do you think, I mean, obviously you think that maybe more collaborative skills are important in the engineering degree, but then how do we, how do we fit that in into the, you know, what, what actually gets kicked out of the, of a, say an engineering degree because obviously it's, a, it's like, what's the time that we have? Because we only have like a four or five year. I'm not sure in different countries what the degree time is. Um, and then that was the one question that I had. Uh, and then the other one was like, how do you better? Because I think in my final year, we did a lot of collaborative, well, group work. I don't know if you could call it collaborative by your definition. We did a lot of group work in the final year. So um, if that was maybe one of the things that they were trying to help with collaboration with undergrad. How? we do that then better or in your opinion well it is very difficult uh, i have observed a lot of student groups because i've taught student projects in teams for a long long time and the vast majority they sit down when they first get the project definition and they figure out how to divide it up into four five or six pieces depending on how many students there are in the group uh, and then they work on it individually and try and put it together the night before it's due in other words, it's actually very difficult to get genuine collaboration where they sit down and they work on things together. Um, because students, I suspect that students are being conditioned to do the reverse. And in my paper, I refer to, you know, much more systematic observations by a guy called Leonardi. Um, and uh, he, and lots of others, I think Maria, uh, you've done work in this too. Um, that students are extremely reluctant to engage in collaborative practices, even when they're taught explicitly. So I've come to the conclusion that it's best not to even try within the current structure. There's, there's a wonderful opportunity, and you referred to that, uh, your own experience, when you land up in your first job and, and you're completely at sea. You, you know, it's not uncommon to find young engineers six months or a year into their first job, and they will say, I've got no idea what I'm doing here. Absolutely no idea. I've got no idea what I'm doing. And I've got no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. And that to me is the best opportunity. We have to accept that universities are, in the words 
of uh, I think, uh, Anders Buch and Ricky Peterson uh, from Holberg University. They're full of things called infrastructures, rigidities, which are very hard to change. And it's not the, not the explicit written curriculum that you would read in the handbooks or the course outlines. Much more fundamental things than that. And it will take generations to introduce changes. So I think it's more, my own view is it's much more constructive to accept what universities are and do what we can do in universities, given those constraints really well. And it's not working all that badly at the moment. But accept that for an engineer, their education is only half, at, at very best, only half complete on graduation. And there is very little done in that second phase when in the workplace. So many companies that I've come across haven't got the faintest idea what to teach their engineers. And that was part of the reason for writing the books. It was to, to actually set out a curriculum. My, my second, my next book, which is due out later this year, is, is a much more basic book and addresses the first three years uh, in a more systematic way than my earlier book to try and fill that gap. But it's really only a starting point. It's like, like writing the results of the research before you've really done the research. To me, the really exciting areas of research to be done are how do we reorient young engineers to a collaborative culture effectively and quickly, understanding that they have been conditioned to think, to think that individual independent work is the thing to get you grades in, a, in an education context. How do we reorient them to a collaborative culture effectively and quickly? I'm sure that can be done. There's really interesting work to be done there. And to start with, we've got to study young engineers as they are in the current system and understand where they're coming from. I think we have to dethrone <laughs> Elon Musk in order to do that. <laughs> in their minds, a, a lot of the incoming engineers, they talk about SpaceX or Tesla. Look, you know, Elon Musk is like a sort of, you know, one of those uh, stereotypical heroes, you know, the hero engineer that solves everything. You know, Elon doesn't solve everything. He's just very good at getting smart people around him. He's the ultimate collaborator in that sense. But that, that side is not, not obvious to engineering graduates. Uh, one of the interesting questions I saw on the thing that you sent me, Chris, was right down at the end, you said if engineers, young engineering students realized what they would be doing as engineers, they might not be attracted to engineering. And you're not the first person to point that out. One of my colleagues who worked with me on this research said, gee, if we tell the students this, we tell them what they're really going to be doing as engineers. We won't have any engineering students. They'll all leave and do something else. They'll be horrified. Yeah, so we have to maintain the pretense for a while. We can't afford to run out of engineers. That would be catastrophic. Uh, uh, my question I have, I think somewhere in the paper you talk about, uh, and I think that this is tied to collaboration as well, when you talk about engineering education, I think faculty making some adjustments to ensure that the hidden curriculum is emphasized. I think at the same time, you talk, you cautiously uh, uh, caution against, uh, I think, uh, curriculum being driven on the basis of attributes from industry. But at the same time, you talk about industry making some adjustments to also reflect uh, uh, those critical components of the hidden curriculum. So uh, my question is, how do you see that collaboration? What are some of the necessary adjustments that industry has to make to meet up with uh, engineering education as engineers or faculty members make their own adjustments? Well, I would like to think that people like yourselves can come up with ideas to, to enable young engineers to be so much more productive, so much quicker, that other companies will say, hey, how did you do that? And then the ideas will spread. So the challenges I see it is that the ideas are all very well, but until you actually demonstrate that you can get some startling improvements, you know, don't expect other people to take notice. Uh, so what I've thrown in there is some ideas. So long, quite a few years ago, I wrote a paper arguing that engineering students should learn to teach. And I did that from two points of view. One was that as an engineering academic, I could see that students actually teach each other in many, many ways much more effectively than we do. Uh, but also from the point of view that so much of what you do as an engineer is teaching work. 
you won't get anything built unless you teach somebody else what, you, what they actually have to build. So engineering is, is an awful lot of engineering is teaching. So my idea was that if we train engineers to teach, we get several bonuses. One is that it's a much more collaborative environment because if they get assessed on how well they teach, as well as, of course, the knowledge that they have to pass on, um, then we start rewarding them for collaboration, real collaboration, rather than just individual performances. And, and secondly, it makes the lives of us academics easier. <laughs> we would have a bit more time to do things. Uh, so they will do a lot of the hard work of teaching. The third is that um, they, they build up the skills that they need to be genuinely collaborative after they leave the university. So uh, anyway, so that was one of the ideas I would throw in. And, and in essence, as I see it, you know, th there's room to, to change the curriculum. So you reward collaborative activities. But in my view, I think that, you know, that's a really hard path to, to tread because it's such a fundamental change. And you people, most of you are doing PhDs. You know, I, I tell my students, as a PhD student, your role in life is to learn how to be a good researcher. After that, you can go and solve the world's problems. Right, so whatever you do, choose something that's manageable for your PhD thesis. Don't, don't jump outside the boundary, otherwise you're gonna land yourself in a lot of trouble your advisors will say, cut it back, cut it back, cut it back. So don't be too ambitious. Right? So, is, uh, is that an answer? I don't think you're very, it's not a very satisfying answer, I know, but by all means, elaborate on the question if you want more. What do you think, Johnny, is that satisfying? Well, I think uh, I, I was actually pushing a point from the industry's perspective to see what are some of the adjustments that industry oh, yeah, okay. itself can make. Yeah, I think yeah, that's what I'm Look, um, what should industrialists do? I think probably industrialists should be a lot more impatient with engineers if they don't perform. Um, they, they, they have to invest in training, but you can't persuade, when you, when you actually go to a company, you know, like I run a company myself now, all right? And I do train my engineers as best as I can. I don't spend too much time doing, but uh, one of the challenges in, for companies is, is this. If I train the engineers and they become really good, then they'll leave and go to other companies. Why should I invest in training, which is the benefits of which are going to go to other companies? Right? So in essence, I think you have to expect that there will always be a degree of skepticism from companies. In Australia, we have a situation, I don't know what it's like in the US now, but definitely in Australia, there is the expectation that companies don't have to do very much training at all. They think it's the government's responsibility to provide them with engineers who are ready to go, just like that. And uh, that's, for that reason, in Australia, we have a very large migration program, which brings in experienced engineers to the point where two thirds of our engineers are actually from outside Australia, two thirds. So we don't have a culture of building up engineers from the ground up. Now, I, I seem to think that in America, it used to be the case that large corporations would have their own universities where they would do a lot of this and invest a lot in training. But I, I did hear not so long ago, maybe two or three years back, that Schlumberger was one of the last companies to completely disband this, 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 this activity. So it'll be really interesting to, for you people to find out what companies are actually doing. I, I reviewed a paper just the other day for a journal about the experiences of early career engineers. And I don't know quite why, but they completely sidestepped the issue of what the company was doing in terms of providing training and support completely sidestep. They were writing about what the engineers were learning and it was clear the engineers were, were being put through education programs, short courses, and they were getting a lot of support from their supervisors, but it wasn't clear what, what was happening. So I think there's a lot of questions to be answered in that space. And as good researchers, one of the things you need to know is you need to figure out what's happening now before you start feeling and changing it. Um, in our context, like our very direct context, 
um, Virginia Tech is like building up capacity to for a kind of Amazon University where students will go. I think in particular they're trying to recruit um, neuroscientists and in order to do like kind of machine learning things and also um, software engineers. Um, so maybe software engineering is too far from the discussion, but yeah, it's sort of already happening here where we're um, and computer science, alone um, as yeah. So okay, so but that's that. If if I read you right, that's a tech. That's a focus on technical issues, right? They're building up technical capacity. Well, I mean, in my own research, I would I would think that they're also building up the capacity to work in it. Amazon specific context and the idea I guess is to offload some of that I think in general the idea of this gap this is my own research but um, is to offload some of this we're doing the training at work right you have to train engineers at work but we want to offload as much of that as possible onto the university so I mean and okay, when you have so they, they want the university yeah they want the university to do the teaching well good luck to them yeah well, uh, <laughs> Also, that's also a graduate program, if I'm not mistaken, or at least the, most of those efforts are at the graduate level. So you yeah, already have true. to have a degree that first before entering this space. So it's not, I mean, uh, it's, not, it's not the same as like augmenting an undergraduate training. We used to have Motorola on our own campus here at the University of Western Australia, uh, I, doing that sort of thing. And they walked away from it. I think of uh, Capital One, um, they gave a presentation to our department about three years ago, where they have this thing, I guess, called University College within their company, where their goal is to train engineers, um, but also to hire people um, <clears throat> without an engineering training and train them for the sort of engineering work they want there. Um, so that that gets me to start thinking of um, maybe it's it's more the way this training is maybe it's not explicit the way it was uh, in the in the company because certainly I have lots of friends that work in the steel industry that still are getting their six to nine months of training every new position even though they are changing jobs um, <clears throat> horizontally um, as as well as vertically as they go through their careers right. so I I start to think of those things. Well, there's lots to be written about what companies do in different circumstances in terms of this, you know, the first five years. It's generally recognized engineers take about five years to reach a point where they can practice uh, what we call in Australia independently without, without being formally supervised by another engineer. In other words, you can trust them to work safely and not kill people. Um, so what goes on in that period is not well, not at all well understood. And, uh, you know, maybe it's just the Australian culture. I came across one company that hired a French teacher to do this, to train their engineers. I'm not joking. It was a French teacher. Needless to say, she didn't last long. Because they, they, but it was because the company didn't have the faintest idea what they wanted their, their engineers to learn. And uh, that was the reason why Schlumberger disbanded their, their efforts at training. So they know, they know, they know they can train engineers in, you know, like how to do instrumentation, how to do, like, for example, Schlumberger will train their engineers on how to uh, instrument uh, an oil and gas well to get the necessary information to use the latest sensors and all the equipment and so on and so forth. But that's, you know, that's trivial stuff. But when one, one of the things we observed is when you try and teach engineers how to collaborate, how to run contracts, how to manage projects and so on, they're extremely resistant to, because they see that stuff as being non-technical. It's not real engineering. It's not stuff I want to learn. I want to learn technical stuff. So it's easy enough to get them to learn technical stuff, but it's very, very difficult to get them to learn soft skills. I mean, there's dreadful term soft skills, but uh, it's the one that most people relate to. They're very hard to learn. It's very hard to get people to learn them too. So I was building on that point. I want to go back to the question of 
how we're advertising engineering and the type I'm just looking to see the read the name my glasses don't work very well and the writing on zoom is very small yeah Kirsten. yeah um so we mentioned earlier that possibly we are misleading people as to what engineering is and that might cause people to choose not to do engineering but i also wonder if we showed them what engineering was if other people would choose to do engineering because they may be self-selecting out because they think it's just the technical skills and so well, part of our problem might be that we have the wrong people who don't want to do these like the collaborative piece but if we had actually communicated effectively maybe we would have gotten the people who want to do collaboration right so if i'm kind of concerned that if we keep pushing off demonstrating the collaboration part of engineering until after the degree then we will still be getting the wrong people who are going through the degree programs right so i'm curious what you think about that well i'm going to be very do engage in very risky behavior here and, and i'm going to suggest that this uh structure of education uh that inhibits collaboration it's not just in engineering disciplines it's right across the board uh, you know, one of the things that I've, you know, like, you know, as soon as you cross from working in a university to working in a, a company or a corporate environment, you realize that enterprises outside universities are able to engage people in much more elaborate collaborations than you'd ever find in a university. Uh, and so uh, university academics essentially have been brought up in this culture which rewards solo performances so i feel that this is a much broader issue than just uh engineering alone but kirsten you're welcome to prove me wrong i think i'm coming from the perspective of women in engineering at least and probably other underrepresented groups i've definitely had women say oh i don't want to be an engineer they don't work with people i'm a people person I'm going to go do communication or education, right? They choose to go into education because they think, oh, that's nothing related to, you know, engineering's got nothing to do with people. So I feel like there are some people who do self-select out, but I do agree that all of education is structured, you know, in an individual sense. So, yeah, look, I, I, I hesitate to get into the area of gender. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, but, you know, look, I take your point. Maybe we are attracting people who are intrinsically non-collaborators, but I think that that's open to be, it's a question that's worth asking. Uh, by the way, uh, of course, there are some branches of engineering which are much more able to attract women than others. And some countries are much more able to get, uh, you know, a good spread of gender representation in engineering, like Malaysia, for example, it's pretty much 50-50, as I understand. Uh, I was in Iran, two or three years back, and there up to 90% of engineering courses uh, have fem uh, are women, in the, at least in the government universities. But there are special reasons for that, uh, and that representation doesn't carry, out into, carry on into engineering practice. So, but you do have to say, well, if engineering is not attractive to women, there are certain branches of engineering which are attractive. And some of the work that I've done is on understanding of value creation in engineering. And I think the answer to me, and again, I'm welcome to be proved wrong, is that women can, can go into branches of engineering where they can see that there is a, a good social value. That, that's, you know, particularly biomedical engineering, environmental engineering, and to a lesser extent, chemical engineering. And it's just that in the other branches of engineering, uh, the value proposition is not really so, not nearly so clear. I think Jenny had a question, but uh, I'm definitely loving this conversation thus far. So, Jenny, you want to go? Well, so, so thanks, Chris. Let me um, chip in. But um, Chris, I know that you you've got a lot of questions to add as well, and you've been uncharacteristically restrained here. So I'm looking forward to also the questions that you will throw in. Um, I'm just, uh, uh, thanks, James. There are so many um, generative strands here. And, and I think this last piece was really important. Um, I, I feel there's a lack of research on this personally. So I've had to do this more through just my own experience of now being in American University. I do think there's two things I would like to ask you to comment on that relate to this conversation. So firstly, the, the way in which students are assessed in general in American universities and specifically in engineering degrees is less focused on academic outcomes 
is less focused on exams, is less focused on individual people doing exams, and is, is, is a, quite a bit more focused on um, group, you know, group um, work, if I just want to use that word. And I'm not saying it's like 100%, I'm saying if there is a continuum, it's more towards that. I think there is a focus, and this is maybe particularly Virginia Tech, students spend less time in the classroom and actually we do know this so law is part of a project that is specifically doing this right now much less time in the classroom and much more focus on get internships do undergrad research projects and so on and that's what employers are looking for in the u.s so also the curriculum is seen as the university time is considered by society here an important time to not only do the academic things I would write references for South African engineering graduates where all they could show me in four years was this really brilliant transcript. And actually they did fine, but in America, you just wouldn't get in the door for a job thing. So I wanted to talk about that piece, which is the sort of, you know, I'll say, you know, if I was talking from that other perspective, I'd say less academic and it's everything that people think about schooling and education in America. And it, but it might be closer to your ideal. The second piece, which, I'm not sure if this is more closer to your ideal or further away, is that vocational education is not as strictly demarcated in the US, which is most probably related to a very different view on class, at least a, an ideal that it's a less rigid class-based society. And of course, that is very much open to critique. But so the, the ease with which one can move from doing a, a two-year qualification into a four-year engineering degree and that kind of shows in some of the comments in the chat as well, where technician level qualifications are not as rigidly demarcated as they are in British and indeed European systems. And I, and I think there are pros and cons to that. I mean, I mean, in some ways, there are people who argue that American manufacturing doesn't have enough skills because it doesn't produce the vocational level skills. So... That, there's too many things there, but I just don't know for, from your survey, because I think you have a very unique global perspective. And of course, initially, Britain spread its degrees around the world during its imperial moment. But now, actually, if you look as particularly in Southeast Asia, if you look at the Middle East, they are looking more to America to how they should do their engineering degrees. I mean, Yi, who's coming to us from China, has very much been engaged in kind of that work. So there's too many things to comment on there, but I just want to know, what do you think of the American system from your vantage point in terms of the pros and cons? I'm talking about the education system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know it well enough, but one thing I would say is that there's very little research in the engineering education space on how education impacts on practice. There's almost nothing. Uh, and what is there is rather gloomy in the sense that uh, corporate culture seems to trump anything you do that's progressive in education. Um, so it's, it's an empty space, I would say. That seems the invitation uh, for Chris to answer questions. Yeah, it really I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Look, uh, go on. My, my own view is, okay, so I've had a lot of, lot of uh, first-hand experience with engineers in India and Pakistan. And there, okay, it's very much an exam-based education, written and so on and so forth. But my impression is that having recruited and worked with young engineers there, that they know just as much and just as little as engineers would anywhere. But five years down the line, there is a huge difference in their performance and capability. And that is coming from the environment in which they find themselves. We know very little, really, about that developmental process. It is not something that happens in the first three months. It happens in the space of about five years, I would say. So, and, and I think a lot of it is luck. They just simply graduate into an environment. For example, okay, so one of the, one of the big differences between graduating in a country like India or Pakistan, on the one hand, uh, probably even South Africa, but to a lesser extent, but uh, compared with America. A young engineer in, in the US is supported by an immense army of specialist technical salespeople 
who go around teaching them how to use products, how to use software, how to do things. Uh, and, and they do that in order to sell their products. They're sales engineers, and, and there's, there's some interesting papers written on what sales engineers actually do. You know, in a, in a country like India or Pakistan, they would hardly ever see people like this. So they miss out on that knowledge. And that's not the only factor, there are many other factors. There's, there's, and I've written about the, the social and cultural issues that, they, that engineers face in that environment. So I think my argument is that there is an awful lot of research to be done. And I hope you're going to be excited and realize that you're getting into an area which has been very scantily researched. And there's a there's tremendous scope to come up with really interesting discoveries. And we need it. If we're going to overcome the sustainability challenges which we face, we have to lift productivity across the whole world. That's the only way we will do it. All of the UN sustainability goals assume a massive increase in productivity. And engineering has to be a play a big part in that. And it's not going to happen unless we improve processes around the world. And that's where you people come in. So um, I don't want to occupy too much of the space, but that this is this gets back to that conversation that we had that um, where there were some butting of heads uh, last week. But I think to me, the training engineers to be more productive and, you know, enter um, work and, you know, be prepared for enacting sustainability kind of assumes that the companies involved would be practicing sustainability. And I mean, when we, there is that one point that was raised earlier that progressive things that we do in education get trumped by the corporate culture. I definitely think that's true. And if they could be trumped by sustainability, that'd be great. But sometimes the corporate culture isn't sustainable. I mean, there's a tricky history of holding companies accountable for uh, sustainable goals, at least in the US. It happens sometimes, but um, it says, it, Rob says that uh, he has a question, so I'll let him ask. Uh, okay, so look, you've in, it opened up some new areas here, and I'm going to point to stuff that I've written on value, value creation in engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of, the, one of the interesting discoveries, you know, the first phase of our research was, what do engineers do? And then we discovered things which engineers are actually loath to do. So it became a question of why do engineers do what they do and why do they not do what they don't like doing? And that has a lot to do with value perceptions because psychologists will tell you that, that theories like, um, oh dear, what is it called? Self-efficacy and so on are tied up with what people see is going to create value for themselves and for others. Now, if you're going to have a conversation with a company about sustainability, you need to understand why sustainability is the only option for any company that's interested in remaining in existence. Uh, let me give you a real example uh, from one of the engineers I interviewed. He was working for a food processing company and they had an appalling record of throwing horrible stuff down the drain, water containing lots of uh, biological agents, which then caused lots of pollution and problems downstream. And he wanted to recycle the water so that they would actually purify it on site and use that as process water. Uh, use a reverse osmosis system and various other filters and things like that. And he had a really troublesome time because the company said, you know, unless you can demonstrate a 25% return on investment, we're just not interested. And so he worked over a period of three or four years with the finance people and finally got a business case accepted. So they installed this equipment. About two years later, that particular city was subject to, the, to really, really harsh water restrictions. And all their competitors went out of business. They had to import their product from elsewhere at enormous expense just to, just to maintain their market share, which they didn't manage to do. And that company made a huge profit 
because they were the only company that could operate as normal because they didn't have to rely on the town water supply. They could process their own water. So it's the ability of engineers to make these arguments that is in question. It's not the willingness of the company to engage in sustainability, sustainable behavior. It's just a question of, of making sure that engineers can make these arguments in terms which company owners and investors will understand. And what our research showed is that most engineers can't do that. In fact, the really interesting thing is we found that there was, there seems to be a big gap in the literature that economics does not actually tell anybody about how engineers create value. But I don't want to go into the details because it would take the rest of the time we have available. You're welcome to read the papers. So hopefully we filled that gap and provided a theoretical framework in which value creation by engineers can be taught and then engineers can win these arguments and then you won't have a problem. Company, you know, investors are willing to be educated. And these days, certainly in Australia, now the, the argument has shifted in terms of sustainability. Now the engineers are being asked, why can't you do this? It's no longer a question of the engineers having to argue for it. It's a question of saying, why can't you do it? Why can't we use solar? Why can't we be sustainable? Why can't we be, have net zero emissions? So I think you might find that that's actually changed. The, the whole argument has changed, but I'm not disputing the fact that, you know, ultimately we, we should be teaching engineers how to create value. And, and we don't at the moment. It's not very hard to teach, I don't think. Can I... But the literature has not been, it, there hasn't been the literature available to do that until very recently. Can I say something as a, as a humanist who happens to be working in a college of engineering, coming from, you know, fields that, are dedicated to the understanding of values and the study of qualitative normative subjects. Um, it seems to me that what you're calling for is a productive relationship between engineering and the kind of work that has been done traditionally in the humanities. Um, it's very interesting. I'm also the son of two computer programmers. So I grew up in a household where often <laughs> Is very much the world view, right? But I also grew up in the decade of the 1990s that was called the second environmental decade, which we clearly failed to succeed at the optimization tasks in the 1990s. And I, I have to wonder about the, the metric of productivity alone when what you're also calling for in the example you gave, which was a cradle to cradle kind of design example, um, is actually an expansion of the imagination and the framing in which arguments about value take place. It seems to me that that's part of the struggle is being able to help executives in a company understand that if they make a choice about upfront costs for water processing in their facility, they're doing that now in a very different operating environment in the next 20 to 30 years. So that those kinds of cost equations, cost benefit analyses, they require a stretching of the imagination as well. Um, and it's more than business as usual productivity. It, it involves like stretching, it involves imagination, um, and indeed it involves conversations about values. Um, and to my mind, you know, Australia, one of the leading things that's come out of Australia has been environmental humanities as a formation. That is people in the humanities in Canberra and you and at UNSW, um, you know, emphasizing that the, the historians and the anthropologists need to contribute constructively in these transdisciplinary groups working with practitioners. Um, so in my mind, like part of the solution might lie in that kind of collaboration. Um, and I put a, a one link in there, but I'd be happy to put more links that, that could help kind of enrich this conversation, I think. I'm, I'm glad you made those, those comments, uh, Rob. It is Rob, isn't it? Yeah. So, so look, um, an interesting discussion has entered the financial press. I always recommend engineers should read the financial press, really understand what's going on. Now, certainly in Australia and elsewhere, uh, companies are being told that you will be responsible 
for the sustainability issues you are creating today, you'll be responsible over the next 30 to 40 years. And we, we've already seen lots of instances of that where companies have nearly, you know, have either gone bankrupt or have been driven close to bankruptcy by the mistakes that they made 20, 30 years earlier. So now the big issue is climate change. And companies are being told, you know, you are responsible for your impact on climate change and you could well be sued. You are responsible for your investors' funds that could be at risk if you don't wake up and realize what's going on. So that is part of the reason why engineers are now being told, do it and t don't tell me why you can't do it. Find a way to do it. Find a way to get our CO2 emissions down. So, so but I think the, the interesting thing, Rob, here is that, yeah, engineers do need to understand this concept of value. It is not something which can be reduced to a number. And that's really scary for many engineering students. But it what the really interesting is, so many issues in engineering can't be reduced to a number uh, and come down to the vagaries of human behavior. One of the most uh, intriguing conversations I had with a very progressive version of Jenny, who's just left us, mm -hmm. a very progressive engineering dean um, over dinner was, it went along something along the lines like this. I had a graduate student who introduced me to the work of Goethe. I don't know if you have read about Goethe, famous German scientist and philosopher. And he had rediscovered ideas that have been around since the Greeks. Uh, or even beforehand, about language and the way that language reflects the ideas in our minds. And he, he basically, one of his propositions was that when you start thinking about an object, as soon as you start thinking about it, the ideas in your mind change. And because the ideas in your mind change, your language has changed. Right? So, uh, and, and so therefore, this leads you on to the basic idea of the French postmodernists, which is, of course, that language is entirely context-dependent and change the, word, the meanings of words depend entirely on the context and the, the time and the place in which they're said, the person saying them. Even, you know, even words can have different meanings for the same person on different occasions. And I was talking about this to this engineering dean, and she looked at me with absolute horror in her eyes and said, how could you possibly have a conversation if you can't agree what the words mean? Now, I was about to reply very naughtily and say, a philosopher, of course, would say, how can you possibly have an interesting conversation if you all agree what the words mean when you start? But I decided that it was much better to enjoy the wine and the dinner without creating a fight. <laughs> and so, so but, but really, I have this, certainly on many occasions now, when I talk about this idea that words have different meanings in different contexts, for engineers, this is a very scary concept. And it can be reduced down to the most mundane levels. Um, I'm just keeping an eye on the time. Uh, I've got a dinner waiting for me downstairs, so I can't hang around too long. Uh, but imagine for yourself uh, an en two engineers on one side of the table who are selling software to two engineers on the other side of the table. And and the two engineers who are the potential customers say, can the software produce this kind of report? And the software engineers say, of course it can. So they sign the deal. And when they install the software, they find that it actually can't produce the report because you have to pay another two or $3 million to have the software configured to produce that particular kind of report. Now, the software engineers, when they were asked, can the software do this? Of course they can do it. What the course they meant is that it can be configured to do it. But the engineers who were the customers, when they asked, can the software do it? They thought that as soon as the software is installed, you press the button and it'll do that. So you have two words. You can hardly have simpler words in the English language, can and do. And on both sides of the table, they mean completely different things. Now, that's a very difficult concept for many engineers. And that's why, Rob, the ideas that you're putting forward can make life so enriching in an engineering education context. And I know a few people who have tried to do that, but it is really, really hard. At, at my university, they've tried to do this by 
insisting that every engineering student studies outside their own discipline. And the original idea is that engineers would have to study in the humanities and humanities students would have to study a bit of science and engineering. But unfortunately, that has gone by the wayside and humanities students are allowed to get away with studying another humanities discipline and engineers are allowed to get away with it by studying another engineering discipline. That's how all the best intentions get laid to waste sooner or, longer, sooner or later down the line. But I think that, uh, yeah, Rob, these, these discussions are very, very important and would greatly enrich an engineer's education if they were, could be treated seriously. Having said that, I think the worst thing you can do is force students into this, these discussions. You have to make them so attractive and interesting that they actually want to get engaged. And I think that's possible to do. I think um, I want to be sensitive of people's time um, and your dinner, <laughs> Dr. Trevelyan, but um, <laughs> thanks for, yeah, thanks for this great conversation, um, everyone. All right, that concludes our podcast for today, and I hope you enjoyed. Big shout out to Dr. Jenny Case for getting our speaker on board, for organizing and leading the Critical Frontiers in Engineering Education Group. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email us at vteo at vt.edu. Again, that's vteo at vt.edu. Thanks. We look forward to seeing you again next time.